you can turn in your Bibles to Job, chapter 27, as we begin tonight the first of Job's two-part summary defense. He's going to speak again after the close of chapter 31, but he's going to speak very little, so he's standing one last time to give an account for his condition and his his conscience. And we're just going to look at the first half tonight, Lord willing, the second half next week. So chapters 27 and 28 tonight. And let me just read chapter 27 to get us started and then we'll begin. So listen now as God does speak to you through his word. And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, he has taken away my right The Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness, and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God what it is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? This is the portion of the wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes, and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask that you tonight would fill us by your spirit and speak to us once again by your word, that you might build us up in Christ's likeness, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would comfort us in the midst of our affliction, that we might increasingly glorify you in, in all things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, some of you who are old enough to remember might recall that it was, I believe, almost exactly uh, 25 years ago. Uh, that MasterCard released a marketing campaign that has almost become synonymous with the company itself by this point. And the first advertisement in that campaign uh, pictured a father and a son walking into a baseball game. And as the scene had them walking through the turnstiles, this print came across the screen saying, two tickets, $46. 
Then it had the father and son going up to a concession stand. Something scrolls across the screen. Two hot dogs, two popcorns, two sodas, $27. Then it has the father and the son in the merchandise area grabbing a baseball, saying one autographed baseball, $50. And then eventually they're seated there in the stands with all of this in hand. And the same kind of text scrolls across the screen. One real conversation with your 11-year-old son. Priceless. And then came the punchline that's been repeated for almost a quarter of a century ever since. There are some things money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. And the only reason I tell you that is because it's true. There are certain things, aren't there, that are priceless. And what Job is calling our attention to in the chapter I didn't read, which is primarily where I want us to land tonight, is about the pricelessness of a certain quality for those who suffer. So consider it perhaps in your own mind. If you were to have someone come along the way, perhaps this night or this week, and they were to say, what kind of qualities does a Christian need when going through a season of suffering? You know, kids, oh, what kind of character is necessary if you're going to suffer well as a Christian? Well, there's, of course, no small number of things we could point to in Scripture, aren't there? We could talk about the Christian must suffer joyfully, patiently, faithfully, and hopefully, those are all true, and we got proof texts for all of those and many more. Uh, but Job is fixing our attention tonight on another one. That the Christian, the one who looks to God in a season of suffering, must suffer wisely. For wisdom is without price, is what he wants us to understand. And that's going to round out the first part of his two-part summary defense, and that Job is calling our attention to wisdom, by this point in the story is perhaps a, a wee bit obvious if you've had eyes to see. Because all along, he's had these three purported friends, right? He's had Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. And they've come along in their own way, cycle after cycle, saying, well, Job, we have the wisdom that you so desperately need. And what we've seen time and time again, cycle after cycle, situation after situation, council after council, is actually they don't have the wisdom that Job so desperately needs. If they have wisdom, it's wisdom that's not from above. It's wisdom that's from below. It's wisdom that's nothing more than them turning into the pawns of Satan. And so Job's going to get us to a point tonight where he talks about the need for sufferers to have wisdom in their affliction. And so we'll get there at the end as we look at the fear of the wise, but I want to first pay attention in chapter 27, what we just read, to the fear of the wicked. Because if wisdom is the main theme running through chapter 28, uh, there's, a, there's a main theme that's quite different running through chapter 27, and, and it's God's justice. And Job begins in the first six verses of chapter 27 in a very familiar place. At this point in the book, he's calling again on his clear conscience before the Lord. But, but notice in verse 2 through 4, he begins by situating his summary defense on God's sovereignty. Verse 2 through 4, as God lives, who has taken away my right, the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter. As long as breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Now, kids, you might know the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law. She, Ruth and her mother-in-law, they come back to the land of Israel. And when Naomi returns, what does she tell her friends to call her but Mara? For God has made me 
bitter. And I wonder if you perhaps have been in a situation where you recognize that God is sovereign over all things in your life, but the situation in which you are in is so difficult that you feel as he has made you bitter. Like Job is saying, the Almighty has made my soul bitter. Uh, But sometimes what we don't realize and why we need the wisdom that's going to come in chapter 28 is what appears to our eyes and experience to be bitterness is something that we must trust in God's providence is is actually uh, our blessedness. And so Job tells us, notice verse 5 and 6, his conscience is again confident. Far be it from me to say that you are right. So he's speaking to his friends here in this moment. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. It's a rather stunning thing to say, isn't it, if you notice the end of verse 6, that Job can stand there, as it were, in this courtroom setting and giving his kind of final defense before his courtroom that is, his counselors, and he says, there's not a single day in my life that I regret in my conscience. And you might be actually almost the exact opposite. For what day in your life might not bring regret or remorse Could you stand like Job before a counselor courtroom situation and say, there is nothing that I have plaguing my conscience right now? And the good news of Jesus Christ, of course, isn't it? If you look to him in faith, that his blood will wash away your conscience from its dead works, from its sins, that you too, in a, in a genuine, sincere way, could be able to stand before friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers, whoever it may be, and says, my conscience is clean. We, of course, know why Job's conscience is clean in this book because we've got the backstory of chapters 1 and 2 that he genuinely has not done anything to deserve this. And what's fascinating to note is what he's really doing in verses 2 through 6 is is calling down a divine witness in that courtroom setting. He's actually uttering an oath because he says, as God lives... And he goes on, so on and so forth. So he's essentially swearing by God in this courtroom setting, which would have been the last line of defense for anyone in that ancient judicial system. For what witness does Job have other than God himself? But he moves from this confident conscience that he has. You'll notice verse 7, really through the end of the chapter, he speaks words now of condemnation. Let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. You know, he doesn't spell it out, does he? But clearly, he means in this moment, who are the wicked but his three friends that have been counseling him all along with wicked wisdom. He's essentially saying in verse 7, let Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad be as the wicked. They've accused me of falsehood. And may that crime that they have committed now come back upon their head. That's exactly what he's saying. It's an Old Testament imprecation is what he's uttering here. He's calling down a condemning curse upon his counselors. And you might know your Old Testament well enough to know that there are many such places, particularly in the Psalms, where you'll you'll find God's servants praying forth, uttering out, calling for an imprecation, a curse, a judgment upon enemies. And Not surprisingly, it can make many a Western mind in the 21st century rather uncomfortable to hear. God's people call out such things. But what is Job doing other than asking that that God's justice be done? 
He's putting himself here in this courtroom setting on, on God's side of justice. And so the rest of the chapter is just yet again in this book, someone eloquently, Job here truthfully, calling down the truth that belongs to anyone who deserves God's justice. For look at what he says in verse 8. What is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off? When God takes away his life? He goes on to say, doesn't he, in verse 9 through 12, there is no hope uh, whatsoever. Verse 13, this is the portion of the wicked man with God and the inheritance that oppressors receive from the Almighty. And, and kids, you might notice there, if your Bible's like mine, at the end of verse 13, it's got a colon. So he's getting ready, if you could kind of change the shape of the prose in this passage, is almost in a bullet point sense, list off all of the judgments that fall upon the wicked. You see verse 14, he has children, but they're born just for the sword. His descendants will not have enough food. And even those who survive him, the plague is just going to fall upon them, so on and so forth, that he can get to verse 20 and say, terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up and he is gone and it sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. Yeah, that's a wonderful metaphor, isn't it? And I, I trust for some of you in here tonight, it's, it's a terrifying metaphor, isn't it? That God's judgment, his justice is hurled out from heaven against the wicked without pity. Uh, Job, Job is preaching a sermon on the truthfulness of God's terror, on the reality of God's justice, the genuine horror that belongs to the wicked. This is the fear of the wicked, is what he says. But in chapter 28 now, he talks about the fear of the wise. Earlier this week, Emily was gone somewhere with some portion of the children in Boston, our youngest. He, he came into the room and he said, Daddy, where's my map? And I said, what map? And because Sarah, his older sister by a little bit, is always his overseer, listener, and interpreter, she shouted out from a different room, he's looking for his treasure map. And I said, what, what treasure map are you talking about? And he said, well, well Mama made me a treasure map. This is something I have no idea about whatsoever. And so we proceed to go look for this treasure map, not knowing if there really is a treasure map, as kids' imaginations and pretend inclinations often go. But sure enough, we got to his room eventually, and we looked underneath this pillow, and there was a document folded in half that said Boston's treasure map. And you opened it, and then Emily had drawn out this treasure map that was this guide to the treasure at the end. And what we find in chapter 28 is Job telling us that all sufferers must be on a treasure hunt. That they are looking for something priceless. They are looking for something that seems almost impossible to find. Because you see, verse 1, he simply says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. You just scan your eyes for the next 10 verses. And what you'll see is Job is building upon this metaphor of being in a mine. And if you've ever seen someone doing mining work, you know it's not just difficult work, it's dangerous work. 
You know, our family has made trips up into the West where they used to mine for gold. It's always a fascinating thing, I find, to be able to go into kind of those historical sites and see something of the mines. And you just kind of glance your way down. They, of course, won't let you in the mine. That's how dangerous it is now. But even back then, you can often find these stories of how many people would die mining for that treasure, for those riches that were buried down deep. And what Job is saying here in this metaphor is that there's, there's something in many cultures across nations that you have to work really hard to get and it's almost impossible to find. And it's wisdom, notice verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? What sufferers need in the midst of their affliction is wisdom. But the challenge that most people understand is it seems so difficult to discover. It seems so difficult to uncover this wisdom. It's even priceless. You can see he says in verse 15, it cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. He continues building up the pricelessness of wisdom, even asking, notice verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? He asks again, where is the place of understanding? Now, we're going to see soon enough that Job has the treasure map to wisdom. But he's expertly and he's eloquently building this tension and this drama that people in the midst of affliction, people in the midst of suffering, they desperately need wisdom. But you can't buy it. You can work really hard and you often can't find it. Uh, Where is it to be found? Well, it's hidden, notice verse 21, from the eyes of all the living. It's concealed from the birds of the air. But here's the point where the treasure map begins to take its rich clue. Look at verse 23. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. It goes on to say the reason he knows its place, verse 24 through 27, is he has creative power, he has creative agency, therefore he created all things, he knows the way to wisdom, and here's the treasure at the end of the map, verse 28. And he said to man, that being God, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Do you want to know what it means to obtain understanding? Do you want to know what it means to possess wisdom? Job says, you must understand, therefore, the fear of the Lord. What do sufferers need? Wisdom. And where will they find it? In fearing God. You know, kids, if you thought of your life as something like a ship at sea, uh, you might know the, the Bible often uses these metaphors for the Christian life, often in nautical terms, even. And uh, kids, if you thought of your life as this ship sailing at sea, you know there are going to be times when the sun is out and the water is still and the boat cruises along ever so easily, ever so seamlessly, ever so successfully. But there are other times when a sudden storm strikes and the boat begins to rock. And some of you may have been in some sort of a boat, a canoe or a kayak, whatever it is, floating along there on the water, and it's turned so much that it was about ready to turn over. Uh, what you needed there at the bottom of the boat was this kind of ballast to keep it in place. And you think of even the suffering and the Christian life serving in that way. It, doesn't it rock you? At least it can. Perhaps even so much that you threaten to tip over in your trust towards God. 
And so, so what Christians need, lest they tip over in the midst of their hardship and suffering, is, is some ballast in the boat. Uh, what's going to help them stay rooted? Well, Job is saying here at the end in his summary defense, what we desperately need in the midst of our, our suffering is, is wisdom. So let me point out two final things as we come to the end related to wisdom. The first, more briefly, the first is that sufferers need the gift of wisdom. The gift of wisdom. You see, verse 22 says, Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. This is not something that you can just grab. This is not something you can just grasp and get for yourself. Of course, it's, it's a gift from God. That he alone can dispense wisdom to his children. That's why in months past when we were studying James, you might recall the passage where James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, what should he do? Pray for it. Because God gives generously to all without reproach. And that's the kind of wisdom that we need. But I think the second point is actually more what Job has in mind here. It's not just that sufferers need the gift of wisdom. It's that sufferers need the God of wisdom. Because in a way that Job uniquely answers, or at least addresses, in all of Scripture, is, is the desperate need that sufferers had, that ballast they need in their boat lest they tip over. And so often in our suffering, so often in our affliction, so often in our hardship, we're crying out to the Lord for help. We're crying out to the Lord even for answers. And perhaps he's silent. Perhaps he's quiet. Perhaps it seems as though the heavens are shut and he's not even listening. But what Job is saying is what you need, even more than wisdom, is that you need the God of wisdom. Of course, you need Jesus Christ, who has become to us, 1 Corinthians 1 says, wisdom from God. Colossians 2 says, in him are all the manifold treasures of wisdom found. So what do sufferers need, lest they tip over? But God's glory and beauty as it's been revealed in Jesus Christ. And it's only in a few chapters from now, in our own study, a few studies from now in this book of Job, that he's going to see that, Job is, acted out in real time. Job has been asking questions. He's been longing for answers. He's been looking for advocacy. God shows up. And I trust you know, God doesn't answer any of his questions. He says, you don't need the answer to your questions, Job. You just need me. You need me, and everything is going to be okay. Perhaps then the greatest question for you when you face suffering, well, what do you need? Well, you need wisdom. What do you really need? God's glory in Jesus Christ supplied by the Spirit. He who is wisdom. For he'll keep you safe and stable. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would give us that wisdom that's found in Jesus Christ. That you would help us even in the midst of our wandering and our failings and our strugglings and our sufferings. To cling always to your Son, knowing that he will be a light for us, a lamp unto us. He will be the strong anchor in the storm. He will be our refuge and mighty tower. Knowing that in him we cannot be shaken. Knowing that in him we find refuge for our weary souls. And we pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen.